0: Also, Mauani Wiyak, Waiwanan Kitanani Moor, a Yos Kipiataya, Pus Notaman, a Yum, MITW Podcast, a Yos Pis Piataya, Pus Napi Notaman, and a Hisekimaka, a Yos Matna Welcome to the Menominee Indian Tribe of Wisconsin podcast. On episode 9 of the MITW podcast, we recorded Drew Lacefield's presentation on mental wellness and grief in our work community. All right, good morning. Um, Mental wellness and grief in the workplace. Um, My name is Drew Lacefield. Crystal was reminding me that I, pro- I forgot to put the NCC on there, I'm a nationally certified counselor. Um, but this was actually something that I created before I got that national certification. So just kind of throwing that little extra oomph in there that um, had to go through the process of that was pretty exciting. Um, so the objectives for the talk today is to really look at helping participants to understand the um, mental wellness and the negative impacts on personal health. And then also the impact of grief, and to be able to develop and identify some coping strategies. And then also to discuss and develop an understanding of workplace professionalism, coping skills, communication skills, and boundaries. Now, if we look at the definition of grief, grief can happen with the loss of loved ones, changes in relationships. That's oftentimes I. I think are some of the harder um, things to deal with for people is when you're talking about a breakup, because that person is still existing out there, especially if it's a really messy breakup, because that person is is still out there. That can be very hard. In the workplace, it can include when workers leave a department, when you have retirements for someone who's been in a department for a very long time, um, when coworkers pass, or when job security is affected. Those are instances that can really compound that grief that people are feeling. So grief is about that change in patterns and relationships. It's about finding that new normal. And it doesn't feel real normal right away. It takes a little bit to get there. It's something that can be really, um, takes time. Time is going to be the big thing that we're going to talk about today. Um, Giving yourself the time, being kind to yourself. And it can move to what's called complicated grief. Which is a little bit more than your regular grief. Grief we know that after a few days will kind of normalize and we'll be able to get back to some sense of a normal pattern. But with complicated grief, uh, we'll just we'll talk about it, but it will um, go into we'll go into how that looks and, and what that entails. And it's the inability to move past the fact that that um, of that loss and change, whether someone's gone, whether you had a breakup, it can lead to continued stress, depression, and anxiety. And what I'm going to do next, is I'm, I'm going to actually describe chronic stress and what that looks like. And and uh, I'm just pre, you know cautioning you guys don't diagnose yourself um, when it comes to this. It's something that um, going through a master's level program, you look at all of the. DSM-5, and you look at all of the (laughs) symptoms, and I think it's kind of this known thing that people start diagnosing themselves. Or WebMD, people are good at that, the Googling (laughs) symptoms. Um, We have some people, yeah, that would be me. So chronic stress. When we look at long-term debilitating stress, we're talking about things that are part of someone's life that are things that we can control and can't control. So we're talking about poverty we're talking about dysfunctional family we're talking about career frustration and unhappiness a volatile workplace those are things that can create that chronic stress living in a war zone and that doesn't just mean overseas that can be in neighborhoods that see constant violence you know you even think about some of our neighborhoods within the reservation you know there's a lot going on there's a lot that you see there's a lot that you hear So it doesn't have to be like a quote-unquote in the middle of a war. It can be just the fact that there are these things happening and you're not sure what safety means in that environment. Unhappy marriage or relationship. And then also complicated grief. So So again, it's like this big circle. So grief can cause that continued stress. And this can lead to suicide, violence, heart attack, stroke, cancer, other health issues. Um, I did a talk a while back about diabetes and how all of these things can impact diabetes as well, as well as some of the other health issues because you're not taking care of yourself. When it comes to depression, we're talking about feelings of sadness, um, tearfulness, emptiness, hopelessness. That's a big one. If you're not finding hope in everyday things, if you're not finding hope in in anything um, and that darkness is setting in, that's, you know, that is uh, um, something that happens with depression. Some people don't realize that angry outbursts, a uh, shortened temper, irritability, frustration, even over really small matters, that can be a symptom of depression. Usually when you think of depression, you just think of, you know, Eeyore and the constant, you know, nothing's gonna get better. But when you look at the whole pattern of it's it's hard for someone to cope with things that are being brought to them so it can be the littlest thing that makes someone fly off the handle and gets them you know worked up and then you know then there will be that real low after that as well. Loss of interest or pleasure in things. In normal activities when it comes down to you know things like sex, hobbies or sports that can be a really tough thing for couples to get through when someone is really dealing with depression because The other person in that relationship is going to think that it's them and that they aren't attracted to them anymore because they're not feeling a physical connection when in actuality it's depression. And it's like that person may still, you know, obviously be very attracted to someone, but it's something that just makes that, it it makes it fizzle out, really. When you think about depression, you can also add in there sleep disturbances, insomnia, sleeping too much. I always talk about the, um, the want to shut down. You know, sometimes we have when people are overwhelmed when it comes down to depression. Trauma is another thing that also feeds into this as well. But that want to shut down, and I can't cope with things, so I need to just go take a nap. That's almost like a fight-or-flight response. It's, a, it's, called, it's like a collapse response. So it's where you just shut down, shut the world out. This is what I need to do. I'm very tired. I need to sleep right now. I just want to sleep. So it's your body um, basically showing symptoms of depression. It could be other things as well, but this just gives you kind of all of those symptoms that feed into a depression diagnosis. Um, Also that insomnia, the not being able to sleep. Depression, if you think of anxious distress with depression, then you think of that anxiety and someone laying awake at night and not being able to sleep or sleeping very lightly and popping back up as well. The tiredness and lack of energy, so even small tasks takes extra effort. Um, Appetite is pretty much reduced. Weight loss or increased cravings for food and weight gain. So it can be either side. Anxiety, agitation, or restlessness, just like I talked about before. Um, Feeling, you know, overwhelmed, just everything working you up. And slowed thinking, speaking, or body movements. Just feeling like it's really hard to push through. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt, fixating on past failures or self-blame. With depression too, you'll often have the physical, some of the physical symptoms can be that you just just hurt. It's just hard. It's just hard to keep your muscles hurt. Everything hurts. Um, It can be really, you know, I think there, I've always talked about a connection between issues like this and autoimmune disorders and there's been kind of some things talked about with research, um, but I don't have all of the research to back me up on that, but I really feel that with the instance of trauma that our population is faced with, the things that we deal with on a daily basis, and then also a lot of you are service providers in our community, so it's that constant exposure, that constant trauma exposure, which can lead to a lot of these symptoms, but then you also think about how you internalize. I'm a great internalizer. I'm really good at internalizing. I find other ways to help me deal with that, and we'll talk about coping strategies later, but sometimes I realize that, you know, maybe this stomach ache isn't because I've caught another bug that's going around, that it's me internalizing some of the frustrations that I have, and that that's, feeds into this as well when it comes down to, like, the stomach ache, when it comes to just not feeling quite right. So those symptoms often come off, and we think they're physical, when in actuality, they're part of our mental wellness. It's all connected. And I think that we've really been at a state where we look at mental wellness and physical wellness, and we already know that those are so connected. But sometimes we don't make those connections, and we don't think of it. We still think of it separately. And I think we're getting better at integrating that. Like you think of the clinic and the fact that they've got that integrative care and they've got some counselors and some people that can be that segue into mental health. But I think we don't necessarily always think that way. And the one thing that I do when people come and meet with me is I do ask them, when was the last time you got in for a checkup? When was the last time that you asked um, the doctor, you know, about these things? How, well, how is your blood pressure? How, how is your blood sugar? Those are things in reality can either be a symptom of, a mental wellness issue or the other way around where it can be causing the physical things because of, you know, because it does. So I think it's really important to really pay attention to what's going on with your body. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well, about how you kind of pull it all together when we go over coping strategies and how to really pay attention to what is going on with your body. I know it can be really hard when it comes to highly traumatized people that it can be really hard to just spend time with yourself and what you're noticing. But I think it's really important to hear what your body is saying to you. I think to the trouble um, thinking, concentrating, making decisions, or even remembering thing things, it can be depression can really feed into that memory loss, that inability to remember things, to always feel like you're like I I swear I just put this right here and I'm not. It's kind of a foggy state, and I've described that to people. It's this fog. And it's kind of hard to see out of unless you're out of it. And then you look back and go, wow, I really was in a fog. Frequent or recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, or suicide. And there's a difference with these pieces. There can be moments where you just feel like you just don't want to wake up. I just wish I would not wake up tomorrow. That is a different thought than a, I have a plan, and I plan to do this in order to take my life. And it's a conversation that we as a community are not very comfortable with. People don't know what to do, and then they go like this, and then they say, let's call PD, you know, or let's call, we don't know what to do. Sometimes it's just creating that space with somebody and letting them talk, letting them know that they're not alone. Being with them so they don't feel alone, because that's what it is. When people feel suicidal, it's because they feel hopeless and they feel alone. So then it's not good to be like, I'll be right back, and then freak out, and how do you handle it? No, have that conversation. What does that look like? Asking questions. Doing it in a very empathetic way. I'm sorry you're feeling this way. Do you have a plan? I just say it straight out no 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 nothing like that I just wish I wouldn't wake up tomorrow because I can't stand the fact that I won't be with this person anymore otherwise there have been times that okay yes it is there is a plan okay well we need to think about that there are some things that I I would like you to do let's set up a plan we look at the motivation factors number one is family People always go to family. What's your motivation, family? My kids, my loved ones, I couldn't do that to them. OK, let's think about that. So in having that conversation, it can be a very hard conversation. It can be a very uncomfortable conversation. But I think not talking about it obviously makes it a lot worse. So we don't want to skirt around those issues. So if you are having those thoughts, if you are feeling like they're there, There are people who every day deal with the thoughts of just not wanting to be here. And they keep moving. But again, the worst part is feeling lonely. So you check in. And I think that a number of us have been affected by suicide. I know I have. I've had people that have taken their their lives. It's not. it's, It's a lot of people, you don't see it coming. You know, when you have these phrases, you're like, oh, wait. And then you start to put the puzzle pieces together of, oh yeah, they were doing these things. So I think it's paying attention and really going at it and really having that conversation. And especially with our teenagers, the biggest thing is that they feel alone. And if you think about the current state of the way things are and we're supposed to just not be kind to each other, I mean, that's what you see on Facebook all the time. Everyone's going at each other and, and then we have, you know, politics that you throw in there as well. And, you know, you can very easily fall into a, a trap of, I don't matter, or I don't mean something. And in reality, that's not true. So when it comes down to it, making sure that you're having those conversations with your young ones, acknowledging that those are, instead of, oh, just just get over it, or, oh, stop all that talk, those conversations should be had. I'm really sorry you're feeling that way. What can I do to help you? What would you like me to do right now? Because then that opens that door of being able to, someone being able to say, this is what you can do to help me. Just don't leave me alone. You just be with me. And to be prepared to be really dedicated to that. And I think, too, also when you look at the physical problems, I talked about that, unexplained back pains, headache. A lot of people carry depression in different parts. Maybe it's the heart that hurts. Maybe it's you know the stomach that hurts as well, and that leads us into anxiety, which again with depression you can get those anxious distress symptoms. But then anxiety in itself can be from stress that's caused from work, school, personal relationship, a number of different things. Um, I think also when it comes down to the ability to see social media all the time and all the things that are happening, you know those of us that do struggle with anxiety, it can be a little overwhelming. And I know with the recent um, issue that happened in Milwaukee, I'm from Milwaukee, that hit very close to home. I taught at the school, when, at the ICS, when it was right down the street. I used to take um, right through Miller, the, the part little, um, right in between the breweries, I used to take that way home all the time. And to think about that, and to think of the people that I know that work there, the people that have worked there, and the people that are currently working there, and hoping, and all of those thoughts start going. And of course, that's absolutely normal when it comes to this type of situation, but when it gets to an extreme, that's where anxiety takes over. And it starts to make you really hit all of these pieces when it comes down to you know, all of the what ifs. We know every day is a what if. We're not sure what's gonna happen today. It's trying to keep that, um, it can be really hard to keep a cap on that. And a person with anxiety, it really is hard to control that. So you're talking about stress that is from other areas, um, not just areas around you, but in this community, it can be the community itself. Also emotional trauma. you think about financial concerns, that's a big one. And actually the cause, the number one cause of divorces is financial. Um, stress caused by a chronic or serious medical con- medical condition, and I'm going to say that as a um, as a cancer survivor, it's been probably going on 15 years now since I had thyroid cancer, and I had little ones at the time, and I tell you, I do not remember a good chunk of that. I mean, that was my body just trying to cope. And granted, I like to tell people well, I had an easy kind of cancer because it didn't have to. I didn't have to go through chemo and radiation. It was a radioactive iodine pill that I had to take and then had to stay in my mother's basement for like I think over a week so I was like yeah I'm at the point I'm living in my mom's basement because I was radioactive I was actually radioactive so I couldn't be near my kids or my husband and it was just craziness I didn't know what was going on they took my thyroid so I don't have a thyroid you know all these things and having to go through that whole process was quite extensive and dealt with And thyroid, too. Thyroid is something physically that can lead to depression because if your thyroid numbers aren't good, that's going to cause those things. So that's something that I have to monitor all the time. But then all of that, I'm just thinking, that chronic illness, that having to deal with that, like I said, total blur, that entire time frame, total blur, no clue. And I've had other things in my life that have happened, um, some pretty traumatizing things that I'm like, I don't really have a good memory of that. So then I realized that, wow, my brain really was not letting me go there. And I probably was in a depressive state, if anything. But I can tell you that when it comes down to it, wellness is about, wellness is recovery. Focusing on your wellness is recovery. You're trying to recover from the traumas in your life. You're trying to recover from everything that's handed from you, and it takes work. Just like when people talk about sobriety, it's the same thing when it comes to wellness. We have to work at these things. So if you know that you have anxiety, if you know that you have depression and you aren't doing the things that you need to do, you better get on it. You've got to, because if you keep faltering and you, if you keep um, tripping up, it's just gonna make things worse and it's gonna be harder to get out. Also with anxiety, um, a major event or performance, like a little bit of of performance anxiety. Like I kind of had that for a little bit. I always get that before I present. And then I kind of get in the flow. And then I kind of get through it. And then I go, well, I hope what I said was good. Sometimes I don't remember what I say. Um, So disclaimers. But when it comes down to it, it's just you know those things. But those are things that also build resilience, challenging yourself. So that little bit of anxiety, you should be able to come back out of and be like, okay. it's good, because you're, you're almost building stamina. It's almost like those short burst workouts. It's like you talk about the physically that's supposed to be really good, those you know, intervals. It's the same thing when it comes down to anxiety. Exposing yourself to that little bit of anxiety by trying something new is a good thing. Now, I don't mean go jump out of a plane or anything like that. I mean, maybe that's your thing. But you, know, you don't have to do anything to that extreme. But trying something new. I think for myself, for a long time, for someone who is, honestly, um, <laughs> I can be a very shy person when it comes to a new setting, and sometimes I just go in the zone. So trying things, I'll tell you one, really good one. I was up at WIEA conference, and you got, it was being hosted here, and I was still in Milwaukee at the time, and I have family up here. It's not like I had to be all shy about everything, but I went into the casino restaurant, and I was like, OK, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go have a meal by myself, because this is so not me. It's awkward. I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this. Do you know they put me in those short ones where you have no one facing, and you're just facing the wall? You know what I'm talking about, right? When you walk in. And so I'm just sitting there facing the wall. <laughs> so I didn't. I, I totally was able to, you know, I did it. It was hard. I really wanted to leave, but I was like, well, you got to eat. But I kind of had that feeling of it's not like I could pretend if anyone came in that, oh, I'm waiting for (laughs) so-and-so to come along. No, I'm sitting there facing a wall. I'm like, boy, (laughs) those boots create a little bit of anxiety with people, especially if you're dining on your own. So that's something that I tried. And it really was a big deal to me, because I was like, I can't do this. And this is coming from as a young mother. I really did. My kids are older now. As a younger mother, I really had moments where we'd be in the mall and it'd get to be too much, and at the time, um, my husband, he would just, I'd just be like, we're done, and I'd just keep going. And he knew to grab all the little ones and just follow me, because I was done. I couldn't handle it. And to be from that person to the person I am now, it's been a lot of hard work to stand up here and to be a counselor for the tribe and to say, you know, I've been there. I really have been there. I understand. I know it can be hard. But that also is something that I can give to you and say, I'm not trying to put all my woes on you, but it's hard work and you can get there. But it's hard work and you have to keep working at it. And there are moments too where I stumble and I'm like, oh my gosh, but I have to check myself in and I have to do my own work. So I'm constantly working on me. And I think for those of you who, who do know me, you know, I tend to do a lot of, you know, jewelry making and, and beadwork and hold classes. That's my self-care. I love to immerse myself. And it's, you know, I need my introvert time for sure. I need my time to recharge. But there's something in me that I just love kind of being around other people, and we're all doing crafty stuff and sewing. It's just a great experience. So that's why I do those things I do, because I feel like if other people can be a part of that circle and take those Challenges, challenge themselves, and just be a part of something and sit and talk. Connections are what are healing. Those are important, and I'm going to kind of touch base on that as well. When you look at anxiety, too, side effects of certain medications, for sure. I've known people who have taken stuff and they're like, wow, this stuff is making me jittery and it's making me sweat. Not good. And a number of medications, you have to let it kind of kick in for a few days. Some, it has to be like two to three weeks. But to really, really be able to pinpoint, and sometimes journaling helps with this, when you're taking that medication, what is happening, so you can have that conversation with your health provider. And I'm not a health provider in that way, but I always encourage people to have that conversation with their provider in case it is a side effect of something. I'm noticing when I'm taking this, I feel this or I feel that, and that conversation is real. We have people who have—I've known people who have had the ear ringing when it comes to certain um, medications. I've heard people who have just, um, you know, gotten nausea. I know I've had some things that I've had to take that caused me like gut-wrenching pain to the to the knees, pain, and I was like, oh, I don't think I want to take this. Probably not good for me, but having that conversation, being able to say, this is what's going on when I do this. Um, I think we're going to have to look at something different. Also, when it comes down to alcohol consumption or drugs, especially cocaine, other ones as well. But that whole that comes after that when you think about if you've had too much to drink or you have a hangover the next day, think about, you know, the times that you maybe... Maybe some of you have never experienced that, but the time you're feeling jittery, you're feeling blue, you're feeling sick. That definitely feeds into that as well. Also, lack of oxygen. That is like number one. (laughs) I always tell people, "Um, I'm noticing you're not breathing. And when you're anxious, you tend to breathe like up here, very shallow. So sometimes we have to come back into our body and really check. What is going on? And the fact that, fact, that it comes down to we're not even breathing, not even taking a deep breath. It's gotta be one of those breaths from like all down here. And you're clenched. Like, especially if you're sitting here now and you're sitting like this, it's like, oh boy. You know, I can oftentimes see that when I'm working with someone, like, wow, well, I'm noticing you're not breathing at all. And right now, I'm not breathing as deeply as I should because I'm talking. But it's very important to be able to take a deep breath. To be able to, people say, oh, it doesn't work. But there are great apps that kind of walk you through it. And yes, when you're highly agitated or activated, it can be hard to breathe because it feels like you can't. Sometimes that anxiety is right in here. And it's okay. There are different things that we'll talk about that help with that. And it, there are some things that don't work for people. And there are some things that I'll give you that hopefully will work. I think it's a matter of trying to figure out what works best for you and working with a provider or working with, you know, whatever you plan to do to try to get things, you know, moving forward. And I bring all of these things into grief and um, mental wellness in the workplace because all of this gets dragged in. We know it does. Even if you feel like you can check it at the door, Even the most trained person has a hard time checking it at the door, especially in a small community. That could be part of that as well, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So when it comes down to grief, we're looking at stages versus individualized emotions. So a lot of people are like, oh yeah, there's stages of grief. We know there's anger, there's there's, um, sadness, there's that is a model that is out there and it's not necessarily something, it's something that I use, but it's not something that I absolutely adhere to because I feel like it's a moving, working thing. Grief kind of goes all over. It's kind of like one minute this, one minute that. So it's not like there's stages as in this, 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 and this. It ends up being that it's this working thing. It's an individualized emotion. It's something that you're going through No one else is really going to understand exactly where you are in that process. When it comes down to the symptoms and response to, to loss, we oftentimes have a collective view. I think of this just this summer and how we've been hit, you know, so many times, and it happens in waves in the community, and how because we're so connected with each other that it impacts all of us. And that can be really hard because we are grieving as a community over a number of the losses. And that can be a hard weight to carry, but we're all in it together, even though we may be at different points. The problem is, is that oftentimes we discount each other's grief. We don't acknowledge that. And I've been to the point, I mean, I know, you know, I've had in my family where we got hit within a few years very, very hard and it was very I- extreme. And I was just like, whoa. And it was both my mom and my dad's side of the family. And, and they're both um, Menominee. And it was just like, holy heck. And then we had, you know, fam- family, close family, you know, that got hit too. And it was just like one thing after another. And I thought, man, that couple years was, I remember my mom saying to me, um, you girls have had it tough, and I stopped, and I was thinking about it, because I'm looking at, at it from everyone else's standpoint, um, and I was like, we have, we really have. I don't know how I've gotten through this, because we lost some very important people in our lives, and how do you get through that, and how do you support the people that are, the immediate family that are going through it? And I think it, it's, it does take time. It does take work, and it does take time. And I think it's different for everybody. It may not be better tomorrow. It may not be better the next day, maybe a couple weeks from now. And that's hard because people want to know why or how long. Why does it feel this way or how long is this going to take? I can't do this every day. And I keep saying, one more day. Let's try next day, tomorrow. We'll see how you feel. And then you kind of, as you get out of that fog, you kind of look back and go, wow, how did I even get through that? And it's starting to get better. It slowly does get better. It can be really hard, especially when things are reactivated or triggered, when you think of having a conversation. And the one thing that people always, I I hear people say, and I'm not sure how I feel about it, um, and maybe you guys can kind of put it in your heads for food for thought, is that when it comes to the loss of someone, You know, people say, just keep, you know, you keep talking about that person because you don't want them to just be lost in the memories. And some people can say it can be too much because it activates those memories. So I guess it depends case to case as to how that feels. And I guess where you carry that person maybe to, you know, and, and how close you were, it it can be a lot of things, but some people are like, no, I want to keep talking. And some people are like, I don't even want to acknowledge it right now because I can't deal with the day to day. So I guess it just depends and maybe having that conversation. I think the biggest thing is communication and to be able to ask somebody, you know, do you want to talk about it? You allow that person the control over that then. No, I don't want to talk about it right now. Or you know, and then they might go into a memory. Um, also, unanswered questions. There can be a lot of unanswered questions surrounding death, you know, especially when it comes down to, you know, the, the what, the when, the how, the why, all of those things. You know, sometimes you look at the last things that someone said. You know, there's a lot of things that continue to spiral out of control. And the one thing that I always um, point to is that, you know, sometimes we don't and we won't have the answers. And that can be really hard because we have to live with that, that we might not get all the answers that we need. Also, when it comes down to trauma, PTSD, All of this, when it comes down to grief, depending on the type of of loss that it was, it can result in that. So if you think about, so grief or PTSD, when it comes down to it, it doesn't necessarily just relate to what you've personally experienced. It can be getting news about a loved one. So if you hear about maybe, something that happened, an accident or something that happened to someone that's close, you can actually have um, what's called vicarious trauma, which is you're feeling these connections. And that can happen in like the social work field, especially. Um, And secondary trauma, it's kind of, there's different definitions of those pieces, but it's the fact that it doesn't just have to occur to us. It can be to the people that are close to us as well, or even when it comes down to the experiences that we have within our work setting. That's a reality and we have a lot of people who are first responders, who are law enforcement, social workers, teachers, there's a lot that you carry, even our counselors, you know, people that are working in our shelters, there is a lot that you're going to hear that you have to be very careful about what you want to and can carry with you, and that can be really hard in a very close community because we know families and we know people, so it's finding to where you're able, and I'm not the queen of compartmentalizing, I'm definitely not. Um, but I think figuring out what, what you have the room for. You know, you can feel really, really bad about situations, and we go through our own little process there, but how can you support? Maybe it helps those of us who are helpers to feel like we can come out of something and feel a little more supportive towards somebody. And maybe that's how we help with that process. But we have to be aware that if we continue to take on other people's grief, that's not gonna be good for us. And I think a lot of us are very good at that. We carry a lot of other people's stories, I know I do, and so I have to find a place to put that. And I do actually do it in my work, in the work that I do, not not my work as in a counselor, but actually my, my creative side. A lot of that goes into that. If I don't have that meditative state, and I was really frustrated the past couple of weeks because there was so much going on you know, within um, some of the roles that I played that I was like, I just want to be. That's all I want to do. I want to make stuff, and I was really frustrated, and then I realized, no, there's strength in this because you realize that you have to stand up and do these things, but you also know that it helps you to pull back into this. So I look at it as like a really good coping strategy and there have been times that I just, you know, shut down and I have, I think people have probably heard me say this before, I usually let Golden Girls play. And Golden Girls will be playing in the background as I'm doing my bead work, as I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And the reason behind that is, is because I don't have to think and engage with what's going on with Golden Girls. I could, I know like every episode like the back of my hand. So when it comes down to that, I don't have to think about it, but it brings me comfort because I know when to laugh without even thinking about that I have to laugh. It's like that canned laughter that's in. You just know that part's funny. It's, it does something to the body. It kind of brings down. You don't have to engage mentally, but it's there. It brings comfort. So that one, I'd say Frasier is my other one. Um, so it's just those go-to things, and then I do my thing, and then I can feel like I'm a little centered, a little more grounded because there's so much that I do carry. You know, and I hear people's stories, so I carry that. I help them carry that burden. I don't want them to have to do it by themselves, so I'm there to help them with that. And also, um, adaption to change. So just looking at change, that can, be, that can cause grief. We know that when we've had things that have happened within the tribe that suddenly we're expected to now figure out how this is normal, or there's, you know, feelings of that it wasn't just, or feelings that it wasn't right, or just feeling bad for a community member, that can cause grief as well. So we have all of these things that can feed into, you know, what grief looks like. So when we continue looking at grief, there is what's called acute grief, which is, are the strong feelings that come out the yearning, the longing, and, and sorrow. When you think about acute, it's not for a long period of time, but um, the thoughts and memories that are there and racing through, and the emotions, including the anxiety, anger, the remorse, guilt, the shame that comes with it. There are all those feelings, and there's no timeline as to how, um, when those hit you, and and it just kind of you, you work through it. But it doesn't last, you know for weeks and weeks and weeks, or for even months and months and months. Integrated grief is loss-related thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And they're integrated into a bereaved person's ongoing functioning. Grief has a place in the person's life without dominating. So it's something that you're able to you know, pick up and keep moving. And then you find new purpose, you find um, new meaning to it. You're able to adapt and, and connect to the, okay, this is a reality now. The finality of all, it all, the consequences, how relationships are changing, um, how it is, how even routines are changing surrounding that death, and how that all comes to be. You know, that's those are the stages, and I guess the shorter time frame of okay, this is what's healthy, this is what's normal, this is what okay, I know now that I've done all this when I've grieved people, and then after that we would have what's called complicated grief. And complicated grief is actually, can be diagnosable. And when you look at that severe and persistent grief and mourning reaction. So the word severe and persistent. This is where we have people who can't get out of bed, who can't go back to work. And it, it happens. It happens. And it, it means, it may mean a little bit of a leave you know, may mean that the person needs a little time to get things back together. When it comes down to complicated grief, again, we're talking about the persistent form. Maladaptive thoughts and dysfunctional behaviors are present. So the continued yearning and longing and sadness. So when we're talking about those thoughts and behaviors, what that means is that we, sometimes people, you know, we think about... um, suicidal ideation, we think about those thoughts of, of death and dying and just hoping that you don't have to exist tomorrow so you could be with that person. And those are some of those thoughts that obviously, like I said, are concerning and you want to acknowledge them but also to really let that person know that they're not necessarily alone, you know, check in with them, make sure things are going okay, that yearning, that longing, that sadness. But there's a point that you know that you come out of that and then sometimes it's really hard to get out of that. And that's, I always go back to the thought process, is that we need to really acknowledge too that this is not a character flaw. This doesn't mean you're a bad person. This doesn't mean that you're not strong. It just means that this really swiped you from behind. I always think of when people kinda in the back of the knee and your knee gives, that's kind of it. Sometimes you don't know what's gonna hit you. You could have all the coping strategies, you could have a basket full of tools, and sometimes it just hits you. And we don't know what one it will be. We don't know if it's going to be you know, trauma. We, don't, we, we just don't know which one is going to hit us um, in a certain way. And I kind of always connect to that with some of the types of therapies I use. And I use brain spotting. And brain spotting is great at going right in and pulling at you know, those slivers that you feel. And I had to go through that process. And I, as I went through that process, there was one thing, and it had to do with a surgery that I didn't think was really going to be this thing that caused all of these issues and caused me some grief, and here, there it was. So much of what I was dealing with and some of the, I would say, kind of the, the fears that I had linked right back to um, a surgery that I had for my shoulder. And it was kind of crazy, because I thought, well, I kind of understood coming out of the surgery, Um, I had a really hard time breathing and they had to put a mask on. It was kind of scary because they did a nerve block. And I didn't realize that I had internalized that and made it a part of myself. And probably there was some, I'm sure, grief and other things in that. But it was causing all these other different, smaller issues, smaller issues. Like being a procrastinator, I'm good at that. And I was like, what is it about? What that's about? Here, like, we connected here. And I was like, that seems really, uh, it was kind of these internal fears, kind of that fear of. And I didn't realize that that had hit me the way it did. Sometimes we just don't know how it's going to hit us. So that is the same with grief. We don't know whether, okay, I'm able to handle this, I can move on, or to whether or not it will be debilitating. And we can't respond. Yes. Hey, Drew. Um, so in working with children, um, I've come across... Or when you know a parent moves away, or you know it's not an actual death loss. It's uh, all of a sudden someone is absent in their life. Mm-hmm. Can you speak more to that? And also um, how the elderly become affected with the changes that they're going through and the loss that they experience and the grief that happens and how they cope. Absolutely. With children, I think um, I think we really need to obviously do some things as a community when it comes down to mental health for our children and for our little ones because that is something that they experience and that can also tie into what's called complex developmental trauma because those are important stages of life that these traumas are happening during and that is a trauma. So if you have, even if people are removed or adopted out into other families as well, there is that as well. And that's something that can really develop into attachment issues. And then that's where you see those behavior issues that come out is because it's related to those attachment issues. So I guess when it comes down to the coping and trying to work with children with that, the biggest thing is attachment. The biggest thing is making sure that they feel safe in their space and and really reassuring them that they, that they are safe. If not just for right now, because sometimes you can't you know you can't promise forever, but you can promise right now you are safe here with me. I am here with you. So just being able to reassure students, because um, that's what you see them acting out in their behaviors and their frustrations, is that they're, they're really um, having issues with developing attachments as well. And that's all part of that. That's when, when it's that, complica- that complex grief, when it comes down to trauma, childhood trauma. That's really something I think that, as providers, you know, we can be, you know, in the trenches, working with children every day, and we know that with um, theory in child development that they need to know that they're secure, that they're safe. And that can be really hard, but as long as you're providing that space, that they have that, if you you might be that only person at this point that can provide them feeling safe or secure, um, or that they're not just gonna go, I was just reading an article today that talked about even just the foster, experience and when kids are fostered out, how that can create those same types of issues and it can feel almost like a kidnapping, which obviously leads to trauma. And we just have to be aware of how we're going about things, how we're doing things, the, the, the wording that we're using with kids. We know that they're resilient, but I think to really talk about it is big. You know, where are you feeling these things? I know you're feeling these things, but where are you feeling these things in your body? And kids can often identify when they're feel, where they're feeling it, and sometimes when you're allowing them to sit with that feeling, it's in my stomach. Okay, I want you to notice that, and what are you feeling with that? I'm angry. Well, let's focus on the anger. It's okay to be angry. What is that anger about? I'm angry because mom never came home. You know, so having those conversations where that leads so they can just put some words to it. And that's I think that's a good way to kind of go about that, is having those conversations. And then, you know, the expressive side. You know, maybe they can't express it. Maybe they can draw a picture of it. Maybe they can go into, you know, what that is. What is this about? So being able to have that, I I really think that, that's where a lot of our healing for our community needs to begin. We need to be in, you know, everyone in, sleeves rolled up, and really working with our kids to try to unpack some of this. Because we know with complex developmental trauma, we carry that all our lives. And we've probably, you know, everyone in this room could probably be like, yep, that's probably me. Um, But we spend that time then trying to unpack and figure it out. But if we can start unpacking it earlier, You know, there is there is hope and there's hope for us, too. I'm not saying we're all hopeless in the room by any means, but it's and you know, really, it is a testament to it that we have this many people here, you know, wanting to listen and wanting to get some sort of answers, because I think we've been really good at identifying what it is. But now we need answers on how to do it. And I'm all about a let's do it person. I'm like, you know what, let's not sit around anymore. We all know what trauma is. We all know that we've probably all experienced it. But now we need to start doing things about it. And even if it is the day-to-day interactions, even if it is how we answer the phone at our agencies, even if it is how we greet people, you know, those simple things can mean something. So going along with, the complicated grief portion when it comes down to the future seeming bleak and empty um and that kind of ties into into our elders as well you know the fact that we've got to find some sort of hope by encouraging them by bringing them into these spaces i think it's very important to keep them engaged and to keep them a part of things i remember um, when i taught for ics a number of years ago we had you know really active elders and they used to come in and um from the um, Indian Council of the Elderly. And it was really, I loved it <laughs> because they brought in the van and they brought the van and all the elders got dropped off at the school and they spent time in the classrooms. And it was really something important to even one, my younger son. He really developed a relationship. And my son's kind of a, he's a, he's a historian. He loves history, he loves uh, war history. So he really developed a relationship with a Korean vet and he's in third grade sitting at a table, and they're like talking about um, experiences. And I just remember his teacher coming to me and saying, I've never, this is so crazy, seeing them sit on these, this elder sit on this little smaller chair, and they're just sitting there, and he's just listening to him and asking him questions, and I thought that was so important. And I noticed that in the community, that he would acknowledge him, he'd give him that, you know, that nose, like, hey, I see you, and I was like, that is so cool, but to really allow them to be a part of, of, of the community as well. I think that helps with that grief process because you've got that whole combination of looking at um, longevity, looking at lifespan, looking at the fact that you know, they're looking at you know, their own, um, like I said, lifespan. There's, there's going to be an end to that and kind of acknowledging that, and, but also getting them to be a part of things I think is really important as well. Because again, that future can seem bleak and empty when it comes down to, you know, if you have all of people around you that are your age that are all dying off, you know, that can really be pretty tough. And I think, you know, when we look at some of our elders and they're at the point now, and we don't have an extended lifespan like other populations do, you know, my, my um, grandma on my mom's side, she's, she's white. She lived to be like 90, I think she was 94, 95. And so we do have some elders that are living longer, um, but within the native population, often not, we're looking at 60s, 70s. We're looking at people that were like, oh my goodness, they were, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, and it's been like, holy cow, what? So it's kind of that scariness, so I think that fear, um, as well, because you can feel that lost and alone, and also have those thoughts when it comes to complicated grief, just that thought that that deceased may return, that you keep forgetting that they're not coming back. But you're also kind of staying there. Instead of acknowledging that, oh no, they, they aren't here anymore, then you just kind of stay there. Well, I just want them to be here. And, and you allow yourself to really sit in that grieving process. So the process itself with um, grieving is that there is no right way. I don't have the answers. I don't have here. here's what it is, here, what it should look like. It's kind of your thing. So own it. Understand yourself. Be kind to yourself. Time is needed. Second guessing the absence and death is natural. It's just kind of staying there. So it's acknowledging that, OK, you know, oh, it's a holiday, or it's, you know, I'm used to so-and-so coming through that door and, and, and I, I miss that, rather than staying in there and just that wanting, that yearning. Not saying you can't do it on occasion, but sometimes people get fixated on that and they get stuck in that. Um, dreading, the how will I face. That's a big one, especially around the holiday times. You know, something that I, I talked with a number of people about is when it comes down to places around here, those, those, those landmarks, those family places, the where you went to eat. Now granted, there's only a very few places that you can go out to eat around here, but maybe you did that with that family member and you have special memories. It can be really hard to face those times and really acknowledge that today might be hard with that. And it's okay to have those moments of, of weakness or that moment of, of feeling you know, that grief when looking at the fact that you know, we're going to go on a boat ride and that's what they love to do at this time of year. Or we went ice fishing and that was our thing. But it's also to, you know, I guess I think of it as honoring, sometimes honoring the memory and being able to jump into those things. It is not easy. Not saying that's the only way you should do, but if you're able to, why not? Also, avoidance of reminders. It can be really, that's kind of one of those maladaptive behaviors. People don't want to be reminded of certain things, so they'll completely avoid any landmark, you know, that, I mean, around here, if you've done all these things with your family for all these years and now a family member is missing, how do you avoid that? But people do. People do. But that's not necessarily the best thing. It can, it, but it might take you time to ease back in it. Like I said, there's no right or wrong. But it might take you a little bit to get back to those things. Sensory stimulation to feel close to a loss. So oftentimes, you, know, you think about the smell of somebody's clothes, or, or even when it comes down to they ate a certain thing, or um, they like to drink a certain thing, or have their meal, um, certain music playing. You know, that was their song. Those are the things that can, that can allow you to feel close to that person. But if it's something that you're doing day in and day out when you get home, that's kind of where you're getting stuck. And granted, I'm not talking about that immediate mourning process when it's like a week to two weeks after, you know. But if you're, you know, having trouble, you know, quite a while after, that's where you probably want to talk to somebody about that. Also, when it comes down to the inadequate emotion ver- regulation versus highly emotional. So when it comes down to it, maybe people are feeling, you know, like numb, and that's, that's normal. Um, and then maybe they're a little more stimulated when they talk about that person. Not saying that that is a normal state you want to be in all the time, but it can be kind of that feeling that you're in after a recent loss. Um, also, when it comes to the highly emotional, you know, that piece when it comes down to anxiety and being highly emotional or just feeling like everything is, is causing a ton of emotions to come out as well, it can be that back and forth. The regular routines, including adequate sleep, nourishing meals, adequate exercise, and social contacts may be disrupted, making emotions more difficult to manage. If you're isolating and you're normally a social person, that can cause a disruption to your system. Also, if you are a person who is maybe, um, you know, you go out and and you do your walks and you're not doing your walks. I always encourage people, especially when it comes to like depression as well, or when it comes to the stages, you know, going through all this grief to try to get back into something. It can be really hard. It can be really hard to force yourself into it. But completely disrupting that routine, it's obviously things aren't going to feel like there's a sense of norm. It's not going to be the way it was, it's going to be a new normal. It's not gonna feel normal right away, I know that. But it's getting that whole sense of how do I work towards that. So we talked a little bit before about secondary and vicarious trauma. So it's the onset of symptoms after contact with a client or the accumulation of exposure to the pain of others. So when you have all this stuff going in, going on all around you, and you're taking it all in. That can really, really put you in states of grief as well. And I try to reach out, you know. And and I know with some of the providers, some of the first responders, I they're all pretty well aware of of where I am and who I am. And I've even made phone calls where I've made, <laughs> I've made supervisors say that person needs to contact me, um, and so we can at least have a phone conversation for me to check in. And I think that's really important for. As partners for people to check in with each other because there's that stage with your peers to be able to have that conversation of how you're doing and you know that when you're working with your partner and the people around you long enough when things are starting to bother them so being able to check that in are you okay are things going okay I know it was a really tough one so you know let me know if you need anything I've even had where all of a sudden the referrals kind of increase. You know, just someone kind of give me a call and saying, hey, so um, a partner or the person I work with or they kind of referred me to you because I'm going through some stuff. And that's awesome that these conversations are happening within our community. But it's also, you know, can be hard because you don't want to take on all of their woes. You don't want to be the one to have to manage it. So also be aware of yourself and what space you have because you... Obviously, each all have busy lives, and there's a lot going on. So being aware of the fact that you may need to put it in check. You may need to go ahead and and say, you know what, I don't have space for that, but can I refer you to someone? Maybe you should go talk to this person, or maybe you should go talk to Drew. Maybe you have someone you're seeing already that you should be talking to when it comes to this. So looking at that and really being aware of what we can and cannot handle, because that's something that within the types of roles that we all play, we know. We feel bad, we feel awful when people go through stuff. So we just have to be aware of how much we're willing to take in. So again, going back to the do I have space. Whether you have that emotional space to hold the pain of others. Um, you don't have to be the rock it's okay to ask for support and to prioritize the situation you know and it can be really hard to learn how to because you can feel waves of and if you are a person who really struggles with anxiety or depression it can hit you and you don't even realize that you're slipping down that slippery slope and you're right back into it but I think that if you're trying to get more attuned with your body. Like, I'm a person, I know that if I start feeling a little bit of a pain, like in this area, that it's not a heart issue, that it's, there's a certain pain about it. When I get stressed, I'm like, ooh, like I can feel it. It's like a little bit of a twinge. And I'm like, that, that's usually where I carry my anxiety. Um, and so it's kind of like, okay, what's that about? Okay, do I have the space for that? Not so much right now, so I need to go ahead and, and work through it. It can be easy for me to say to myself, let it go. Is it easy to let it go? Not necessarily. We're used to people kind of telling each other to toughen up, to get over it, to let it go. That's not always easy. We're a little more complicated than that. And as much as we have all the you know, the stoic faces, the kind of, you know we can handle this, We're kind of some sensitive people, in a good way, in a good way. A lot of that is in our attunement to each other. We have that connection to each other. Our nervous systems connect on a daily basis. So we are connected to each other without even realizing that. We're connected to the children we work with. We're connected to the clients we work with. Sometimes you can feel that where there is that energy disruption when you can feel someone come in and you can feel that they're like this and you're like, whoa, I have to be aware of my energy because they're totally throwing me off. And how can you be that person to kind of bring them back down and talk them back down? And some of us are really good at that. Some of us are not so good at that. So you have to be aware of where you are in that state. If you are one of those people that's able to calm others down and kind of work with it, there are ways that you can phrase that too. You know, I noticed that you're, you're a little emotionally heightened today. Is there something that I can help you with, or is there something, or do you feel like you need a moment? What would you, what would you like? You know, it's being a helper, being a good helper. So when it comes down to um, the do I have space, it's again, creating boundaries. Are we all good at creating boundaries? Mm, not so much. Some of us really have a hard time creating boundaries. But it's a healthy thing, being able to say, you know, I can't take all of this home. I can't save the world. I am not Superwoman. I'm not Wonder Woman. Um, I'm not even Black Widow. So when it comes down to all of that, you know, having that conversation with yourself about what you can. Take on what you can't and creating those boundaries, having that conversation with other people. I don't know if I can hear it right now. I'm kind of have to focus on me. That can be tough, because it may sound like you're slighting somebody. It may sound like you're, you're kind of pushing into the side, and it's not. You're just acknowledging the fact that you um, don't have the space for it right now. That goes into empathy. So when we talk about the ability to feel with people, there are healthy ways to be empathetic, and we're gonna kinda talk about um, the unhealthy ways as well, but empathy does not necessarily include judgment. So that can be really hard. We can oftentimes, we know too that with, with some people, it's their, they may have gotten into another situation where you could see it coming, where it led to it, where there were certain things that led to all of that, or they choose to stay in this state of because they're not in a good place. But we have to pull away from the, being, from the judgment when it comes to that and being able to um, recognize what you're feeling and what you're pulling out of that as well. So we can also, we can look at somebody and say, you know, they're really stuck in this place. And if they would just do this, and if they would just do that, that's a little judgy. You can give helpful hints as to how they can maybe get out of that dark space or that dark place. But I think, you know, telling them that they need to do something or, well, if you would just get out of that da-da-da-da-da, you know, you're, you're in a bad relationship and, 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 you know, now you're dealing with, you know, the death of your mother or you're dealing with this. And, and you should just, that's a tough one. People don't want to be told. Sometimes they just want to be heard. So being empathetic, allowing that person to share, but also to recognize and communicate the emotions that are felt. What are you feeling? What are you noticing now? What's going on right now? What is it you're going, what is it you're feeling? Sometimes it'll be anger, sometimes it'll be, you know, just the pain of the, the hurt and the sadness, and that can be hard to, for people to identify, too. Some of us, you know, we're grown folks, and some of us are not good at de- identifying, because the number one thing, the, the primal response that we often do have is anger. You get mad about something. But that's kind of one of these things up here. There's some things behind it that lead to you responding that way. So let's look behind that. What really is it? It's shame. Because I wasn't there when I needed to be there. Or it can be, you know, hurt. Because I can't believe that, you know, this happened this way and I'm really hurt. Um, Especially, you know, when it comes down to You know, the loss of someone who may have taken their life by um, suicide. It's that hurt. That hurt is left. Because the thought is is that they they left me or they did this to me. That can even happen in, in certain deaths where it's they left me. I'm hurt by that. So to have that conversation with that. And also, empathy is not, at least. I know it's really tough for people to hear. Um... You know, that's the one thing. At least they're not in pain anymore. That doesn't feel good. <laughs> it still doesn't. It doesn't fix anything. I know it's just something we go to because we know that's true. You know, if they were a person who had this long-term um, illness and we know that they were in a lot of pain, you know, that at least they're not in pain anymore. That kind of makes it like, well, eh, and it doesn't feel good. So those phrases are not necessarily helpful or let it, just let it go. Find a replacement. Find, I've, I've heard that one before where people are like, well, someone told me just to find a replacement for. I say it in a way that maybe you need to find a new purpose to certain things because it's a different purpose. Not saying that that person should be just pushed to the side, but what, what purpose are you serving today? Not saying there's no purpose for you, but what is your goal? Because now it's, it's that forward-looking. It's going to have to be. That's not easy, because you don't want to leave this person back here. I'm not saying you have to forget that person. I'm not saying you even have to let them go right now. I'm just stating what does today bring? What are you going to try to work through today? What are you going to try to work through tomorrow? If you were the sole caregiver of someone, that can happen quite a bit where you have no sense of purpose now. Where it's like, you, you did everything for that person, and, and what, what now? So it's, it's being able to say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to figure it out? It is figuring that out. And you don't have to let that, go, that person go right now. You know, and traditionally there are some things that go in there too. You know, there's different ways that we say we don't want to keep that yearning and that crying and all of that because that, that prevents, you know, someone from being able to move on. And that's been talked about before, and I think that's honestly one of the true blessings of me being able to be a practitioner within my own community, within my tribe, is that we can have those conversations that aren't necessarily had in a mainstream level, is we can talk about that. Because there traditionally are ways that we mourn, and we don't have all of that anymore, to the extent it was. A lot of us do try to go back to certain things, and we acknowledge that we have You know, a fire, and and we do these certain things, but we had some pretty intense ceremonies. You know, all of our woodland tribes had these pretty intense ceremonies that helped us through that process. So you were so emotionally exhausted, and it's almost like that purging of those emotions through those ceremonies that you were done with the mourning process when it was done. And we have lost some of those ties, and that's not saying everybody has, because some people are really tied to. Um, traditional ways, but some of that along the way has caused us issues in how we grieve. So I'm bringing you a little bit of both of that mainstream side and some of the, the, some of our traditional ways and how do we work that together. You know, and, and it can be a very hard conversation to have in the mainstream world because, you know, our policies are built for certain things, and, and, but we also know that, you know, in other settings, we don't necessarily acknowledge that in that way. So that can be a part of that too. It can be that frustration. It can be that acknowledgement of family because family looks a little different for us as tribal people where it's like my, my cousins that I have, I mean, we were all raised really close and we know that, that's how it is. You're almost like brother and sister in some instances. It just depends. So it's like all of those pieces when it comes down to all of that, actually leads right into that enmeshment piece that I'm gonna talk about. So enmeshment is a relationship between two or more people in which personal boundaries are unclear. And we definitely have that in this community. We are very much a part of each other's lives, even at points where sometimes it's like, whoa, I don't know if we need to be stepping into that. On an emotional level, people feel each other's emotions. Like I said, we are our systems, our nervous systems. Our emotions are connected to each other. So you can feel that. If you are attuned to that, you can really feel it when you walk into a room. And that can be overwhelming, and you have to be aware of being able to protect that space for yourself so you don't go right there with somebody. And you think of um, an individual may emotionally react and escalate when others are affected. So some people who aren't really good at being able to work through that process may really, really feed into what someone else is feeling. And so it's like oftentimes you can see that in our children where if someone reacts a certain way, someone else reacts because they're connected, and it's like how do you bring this person and, and, you know, like when babies start crying and one starts crying another starts crying, it's, you know, it's that attachment. And I think that it really is something that as a tribe, as a whole, we need to really acknowledge that and reflect on that because there may be these mainstream terms for it, like enmeshment, but it's part of our being. We are a collective unit. We are part of each other's lives. So it's something that it's kind of plays both roles, again, in the mainstream world and in our world. What does that look like? Codependency can be a product of that too as well, though. And we can often see that come out in the fact that we have people that, you know, they will take on things that they don't need to especially one to rely heavily on others for help with decisions so you may have a state of helplessness with somebody and they can't do anything and then the other person is supposed to pro- provide it during that time and that can really really be a hard thing especially when it comes down to like the loss of partner or when you're looking at our elderly when they're really you know they've been together for a lot of years um, that can be really something that there may already be a codependent relationship created. And now one of the partners is gone, so what is that person left with? And it could be the person who is either the caregiver or the person who was taken care of. So that's a whole nother formula that as family members, as community members, we need to figure out when it comes to certain people. So when it comes down to really taking a look at that piece, um, some of those codependent behaviors include the struggle with just someone communicating. Maybe the other person did all of it for them. And oftentimes I know we have that with our kids. There's a little bit of that where, you know, they turn a certain age and as mom, they're in their 20s and you're still making their doctor's appointments for them. It happens. <laughs> so it's a little bit, it's not quite that. But when it comes to valuing approval, low self-esteem, and enabling others. So that's a back and forth thing, and when it comes down to that enmeshment, that's not necessarily a very you know, healthy way to deal with things, and that's part of that grief process as well, because like I said, when you have people that are intertwined the way we are, you might have these things that you're noticing is coming out now with someone who you know, was a provider for someone all these years. That can also relate to the, the parent-child relationship adult parent-child relationship, when you're at the point where you're taking care of, care of a parent that is older, you know, there's probably issues with that, and you might have um, maybe a parent isn't taking care of themselves and, and, and kind of chooses or has trouble, or now suddenly they're helpless, and you have to kind of step in. And that's part of that, I think, um, Janice, what you pointed out about elders and kind of looking at the long term and the fact that they're looking at the end of life. And sometimes you have people who are having a hard time with looking at the end of life, so they just stop doing. And a lot of times that is that depression seeping in. And then if we have partners or children or whoever that are a part of that um, with them, that's where that enabling can come in. Like, it's, well, mom can't get out of bed to do this, or she can't do this for herself now. And is it really she can, or if, is she in a state of and is having a hard time? So I think, you know, there's so many pieces to all of this and how it plays out into our, our community. So when we talk about our community, um, like I said before, we're intertwined with each other's losses and griefs. Then we also look at that politics as well, and that's a tough one because that's something that can bring um, that sense of mental wellness, that sense of, of dealing with some of the issues that we've had. You know, we've got the, the constant, like if someone's in the workplace, all of a sudden someone isn't in a department. You know, all of a sudden, you know, they're gone, you know, and, and it's kind of like that communication is a, is a little lacking and, and how are we supposed to deal with it now? Or when you have a retirement, or when you have, you know, the changing of certain things. You know, it just makes it awkward. And and we have to figure out how to deal with some of that. Um, remembering the value systems that were taught. You know, some of the, you, those things of respect and love and and humility, those teachings that were given. And sometimes it has to be like in the workplace, you know, we had some things that we went through as a tribe. You know, we have people who, who are, you know, just gone from departments, and how do you deal with that? How do you even process that? Especially when the conversation isn't necessarily happening, and you're kind of given, you know, here it is. Um, I always think that there's always, you know, hindsight in how we handle things, and, and we, maybe we need to look at things a little differently. I'm not, I don't have all the answers for that, but the biggest thing is letting go of those ill feelings, like in working with each other just understanding each other, having a connection with each other in our community. Um, As much as we are connected, sometimes we are really hard on each other and oftentimes very judgmental with each other. And that's me being honest. You know, and sometimes we're, oh, that family, well, you know, (laughs) you hear stuff like that, it's like, what? So it's really being, honest about the fact that we are all human, we are all connected, we are all resilient people, but we need to acknowledge that just, I guess, human decency is important when it comes to some of this. So that's kind of my soapbox about how to be kind to each other and how to remember to be kind to each other. I think that's really important. And I think I'm a person who, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the expert in how to be nice to others when they aren't necessarily kind back, but I really try to practice that. And I think it makes people uncomfortable too, because I mean, you know, all of the work that I've done in different spaces and in different places, sometimes I have people who I know were just absolutely rude to me, and I'll still smile and give them a hello, and you can see them go like this and like run the other way. And I think that's kind of fun. But um, <laughs> but it's still, like, I'm just going to give someone the common courtesy, whether they're mad at me or not, whether I had to tell them no at some point. I'm just, I don't have the space for that. I'm letting it go. It doesn't, I do not want to hold that. I do not want to hold that anger or that, mm, towards somebody. It can be really hard to work through that, especially when we talk about politics within work environments and how we can have some really extreme not good things happen to people um, where we lose respect where we lose you know, faith in people. But sometimes it's like, is it worth? We can have our sides and be like, oh, I really can't deal with that person. But I'm still going to help you with whatever you need. And that's kind of being, I guess, what you would call the bigger person. Not always easy. It is not always easy. When it comes down to good mental health practices, all of these pieces play into that mental wellness and that grief. Um, If you are not doing these things, it's going to make it harder to get out of where you are stuck. So taking care of your body, maintaining your health, taking breaks throughout the day. And I'm not talking cigarette breaks. That's my other, because I know that's, and you know when the stress is high, we know people smoke more. We know that. So even monitoring that, if you have that habit, you know, it's something that I honestly can say that I haven't. I've tried, you know, smoking cigarettes when I was a teenager, and, I, you know, you know, it's like everyone's doing it. But it was never a habit that I had, but I can understand the even the... I don't know if anyone ever saw that episode of Friends where... Um, oh, I'm trying to... Jennifer Aniston, Rachel, where she was with all of these in a fashion in the fashion business, and they were all smokers, so they'd all go out and smoke, and they'd have all these great, fantastic ideas and get assigned to certain things when she was inside because she wasn't a smoker. (laughs) So she was, like, pretending to pick up the smoking habit because she was, like, all the good stuff and all the decisions were being made. And I realized that that's kind of the way it, um, it goes when it comes to smoke breaks. That's kind of like the way where you can just talk and, you know, just... Check in with people and 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 take your mind off of certain things. But it's not always the healthiest thing. So I'm, I'm saying don't increase your breaks with smoking. Um, not a good thing. I do understand that it can be hard breaking that habit, though. Um, challenging your brain, building resilience. Like I said, challenging yourself to do things that you haven't done before. Maybe reading that book that you haven't po- picked up. We've got some great resources, you know, a little plug for the library and my library ladies. Um, They always have the community read, so you can go pick up a free book. And I haven't started the one. I picked it up, but I haven't started it yet. Um, Again, that's one of those back burner things. But, you know, it's, you know, they pick really good reads. So something like that, you know, challenging your brain. Challenge, you know, you think about some of the games that we have and the apps we have. I know that there was something recently sent out by Lucas that had a link to some apps that you could get through our wellness piece that he sent out. So there are things that you can do to kind of challenge your brain there. Um, I like Boggle or Words for Friends. I really do like that, you know, just to kind of get my mind off of things, just to kind of get the brain moving in a different way. Also challenging your brain and building resilience through, you know, some people are doing, you know, school. or some people are taking maybe a class, maybe a yoga class, tuning into your body, you know, trying something a little different. I heard they have, like, um, yoga at Shano Rec, like, on the board. Is she like, on a boogie board type thing? I don't, I don't know the details to that. But I was like, well, that's something different. And also identifying your support system. I think that's good to have a plan as to who your support system is but also that your support system isn't just one person because that isn't necessarily healthy because maybe they don't have space every second of the day for you or maybe they are dealing with their own things but if you have a support system where it's maybe you know two or three people and it doesn't have to be you know the person that you work with it can be you know it can be some of the resources that I give you after you know there are connections to, you know, t- text lines, and there are connections to hotlines that maybe you just need to talk to somebody, and that's okay, too. You know, I think telehealth is really hitting um, a big thing. It's, it's on an upswing right now. There's a lot being talked about when it comes to, like, telehealth or, you know, people being able to have those conversations over the phone or using text for some of those pieces as well. Also practicing sleep hygiene. How many of you go to bed with your phone in your hand? Admit it. Just admit it. I'm one. I've been like, drop it right here. Um, Yeah. So yeah, it's hard because you're like, you know, just you think like mindless scrolling, 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 or game. I've, or, or, you know, having the iPad or whatever. Um, How many go to sleep with their TV on? That, honestly, yeah, that's a hard habit to break. But your mind is still like this. Your mind's still going. It's still racing. It's still tuned in. So that is, again, another sleep hygiene. Also taking out caffeine at a certain point of the day. Usually, I think, around 2 o'clock is supposed to be the mark that you're taking caffeine out of your system. So even if you're a soda drinker later in the afternoon or a tea drinker, you know, that can be something that is, mm, that might cause some of those sleep hygiene issues. Um, Thinking about the fact that we're in that time of year when it comes down to, I was just thinking about that this morning. I was like, humidifiers, how many of us have humidifiers right now in our homes? I hope people do, because that wood burning, you know, or just even the heat itself, I was like, we need to set this up, because I woke up, it was so dry. Also making sure that you um, kind of check the things, maybe trying to work on making sure things are comfortable. You may have certain habits, certain routines, shutting it down a little earlier than you're used to. Just really kind of looking at that sleep hygiene and and what it's like because that's something that, you know, can be really hard for people and then we feel tired, then we feel exhausted. And especially when you're you're struggling with mental wellness and when you're struggling with grief as well, it can be that constant tired. Taking time to practice mental wellness activities. So doing things, you know, that allow you to be in a meditative state, whether it is a game, whether it is reading, whether it is journaling. Um, coloring, that's, that's, I know that's been an up and down trend and it's pretty cool. I think when you see a bunch of adults coloring, it's, you know, especially watching them stay in the lines, that's great. It like tunes you really in. And I have coloring books. I think in my office, I have them in some of my buckets because I've given them to people like here, just color. Um, when it comes down to like even just Thinking of the things that you like to do, making time for those things that you like to do. Also consulting with your doctor and a mental health professional as prevention and maintenance. So we don't want it to be the last resort. We don't want it to be the ones that are last on your list. I'm having a crisis, I need to see someone now. Using it as a prevention tool is very important. Really paying attention and fine-tuning and saying, well, you know, my stress level is a little up. Maybe I need to talk to somebody. So being able to access that as well. And for those of you that are employees with the tribe, I mean, and which I think is most everyone here, um, I'm a phone call away, and I try to get people in pretty quickly. Um, so when it comes down to it, just making that phone call and making that appointment um, can be really, you know, even if it's just once. Sometimes people come in and they just want to talk about something, and they're like, oh, I feel better. And then I'll never hear from them again, and that's fine. Um, but they had some place to leave that, and you can leave it in my office. Granted, I obviously have to clean out that energy afterwards if you're really frustrated, but being able to just dump it is, is a good thing as well. Also, some other mental wellness activities when it comes down to volunteering, a good way to feel better. Maybe hard, but you feel better. Connecting, socializing, that can be a hard thing as well. But I think that when it comes to healing, the importance should be placed on connections. And I don't think we, um, maybe some of us aren't aware how important those connections are and how we carry each other's health with us without even intending to. So those connections are very, very important. Spending time outdoors, I think we are so blessed to be surrounded by some of the most beautiful land. And I know some of you, that is the most important thing that you do all weekend long. And I think that is absolutely the, one of the best things that you can do. So if it is out that outdoor time, and I know some people who have been like, I haven't been out in, outside, you know, I haven't been able to go and do this, you know, when we've had weather or something, that really throws people off and you can sense it in yourself that I just need to go be in the woods, or I just need to go be you know, somewhere where I can just, ugh. You know, some people are that definite connection, and some of us are not so good at the connection. Maybe we need to ramp it up a little bit more. I think that's important as well, and especially when we're in a time of year where, as I'm keeping you inside in a dimly lit room, we have the sun right outside, because that oftentimes feeds right into depression as well, especially with the vitamin D deficiencies that we that we suffer from. And that's one thing definitely where it goes to that medical connection. I know I had it at a point where one of my providers years ago when I was a, a lot younger was like, whoa, your vitamin D is so low. And it's like that feeds right into depression. That can, that can be um, a part of that as well. Being active. You know, just kind of, you know, being able to get that walk out, being able to do some things, whether, even if it's just like a low-maintenance activity, being a little more active, trying to, um, you know, park a little further when you're, at the, when you're at the store, get that short walk in, a few more laps around Walmart, maybe. You know, things like that. Or just actually intentionally planning that time. And I know that can be really hard in busy lives. Culture is therapy. I love it. I love having you know sewing classes in my space. I love, you know, sitting with people and, and making you know moccasins. I love taking my time by myself and working on the things that I want to um, when it comes to that. I love that we have culture camps. I love that we have all of these things that you can immerse yourself in it. And the great thing is, is that we are very, very much at a point now where people are welcoming and inviting. And just do it. And that can be an anxiety thing, too. If you're a person who hasn't participated in certain things, that can be a little bit of, well, maybe I will go to Roundhouse. Or maybe I will go to, you know, some of the social dances that are held locally. And it was, last night I was able to be um, in, in a space where it was part of an art show that's in Green Bay. And a number of the women are indigenous artists. And it was just great to be in that space where we're all just, like, pumping each other up though that is important for the system, that's important for, y- for you to be a part of, of your culture and who you are, you know, whatever that culture is. Um, when it comes down to it also, meditating, breathing, journaling, I've said this before, I am the worst at meditation. So you get these great, and I'll give you some resources too. I have some apps and some different things that I have tried out. I have the hardest time getting through three minutes of meditation where they just make you breathe and notice certain things and they're talking. I really, really try. I can make it about a minute and a half because then I'm like, and then I think of something and then I write it down because all these thoughts pop and I'm like, boy, you're supposed to be working with people on this and you're the worst at it. I am trying. So even though I am a person who is telling you do it, do it, do it, I struggle with it myself because I've always got the thoughts going and I've always got, okay, now tonight i got to go do this and that. But it can be hard, too, for a highly traumatized population to sit with your body and notice the things that are going on. Because sometimes we don't realize the amount of tension that we're carrying within our bodies. We don't realize that we are really struggling with the inability to breathe because we're carrying something with us or we don't realize that the tension's all in our back or the back of our neck. We don't realize that maybe we're sitting like this, that our posture is horrible because we're clenched. You know, so meditation really kind of teaches you to kind of get in there. And like I said, I'm, I'm horrible at it, so I keep pushing it. So if you achieve it, let me know if you achieve it. But on the next page, um, I have some resources about it. So the meditation, the breathing, and journaling, important things. Honest guys, and this is kind of my thing. I kind of mentioned this during my last talk. I really, um, I have a hard time meditating when I'm listening to someone who has an American accent. I kind of have, I like the British accent. So honest guys actually has, um, they're British, and I think they're British. It's either that or Australian. Very close though. But you can't really tell. Um, So I'm listening, and I'm like, okay, I can do this. But they have YouTube videos that you can just pick one, a five-minute one. And even if you have it playing in the background and try to focus in and sitting at your desk um, and, and listen to them, they have a whole slew of different ones, which are pretty good. Then EAP Services, that's my phone number up there. Crisis text line, if you text home to that number, you'll get someone that responds back. And then of course the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline as well as a 24-7 365 crisis hotline, hotline. The one um, and a domestic violence hotline. The one I thought I put on here but I forgot is the I'll have to um, send an email out but it's a domestic violence and it's an indigenous run so they actually have that I believe through Minnesota there's a lot of Um, grant money that went through that. So you have Native women that are, are um, started that hotline. Um, I'll have to get that information for you as well. And then any discussion for the next page? But my quote is, the greatest gift we can give ourselves in times of struggle is the support from those who understand. And I think when it comes down to it, if we can look, you know, and we can connect with others and really truly show that we have some sort of understanding. Um, that's important. Sometimes people are struggling with the one thing that they don't think people are getting, where they're coming from, that you don't understand. You'll often hear that, you, you, you don't understand. I may not understand your situation, but I'm here and I'm listening. I'm here, I'm with you. Why don't you tell me about that, what's going on? So those open-ended questions are great. They're great questions. Because then you can let someone just talk. Sometimes it's just about talking. And that, I believe, is it. Those are just some of my other resources. Do we have any questions, any discussion? I know it's a lot to take in, a lot to process. Sometimes people are just thinking in their heads. Any feedback? Well, I want to thank you for sitting in on our most current um, Manam talk. <laughs> and I really do appreciate the audience and and the um, time to really throw all the things that I've put together right at you because I really, really do believe it's about healing our community. It's about healing more than just the tribal community but beyond because we're so connected to the communities around. And I think it's really important to have these conversations. And if you need to reach me, Please feel free to. Yes. Do you have plans for future training? I'm kind of thinking of some ideas. So if people are thinking of things, send me an email. Send Crystal an email. You know, we're working on some different ideas. Um, I do some things in my off time um, as well that are kind of a parent-geared piece that I just do it on my own time. But... I think that we are open to other ideas and I think it's really great that we have the number of people attending today, but I think it's really a great time to have these conversations. Thank you. And that is it. Thanks. (laughs) YWANN, for listening to the MITW podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also listen to the podcast on menominee-nsn.gov under the Community tab. Follow us on Facebook at MITW Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at podcast at MITW.org.